may be seated. Let's open up the Bible together, and kids, you are invited to head on down to kids' worship. Uh, we are in Mark 9 this morning, Mark chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 2 to 13. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be a couple in the uh, pew rack there in front of you, or the chair rack uh, in front of you to grab. Let me read this for us. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it, it is good that, that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Father, as we look at these words together, may the Holy Spirit be our teacher to enable us to see the glory of Jesus by faith, as we pray in his name, amen. All of us have experiences in our life that are simply unforgettable, things that you've seen, things that you've done, uh, places that you may have traveled that have left a lasting imprint upon you. Uh, just this last week, there was a knock on the door, and as I opened it, there was a Boy Scout who was raising funds for his local uh, scout troop, and I began sharing with him my experience as a Boy Scout, and particularly two high adventure trips that I was privileged to be able to go on. One, a 75-mile canoe trip in Bisset, Manitoba, and he laughed, and he said, uh, you'll never guess what I did last summer, he said. I went on that same trip. And so we started swapping stories of that wilderness that we saw and all of its majesty and what it's like to, to carry a canoe on over your head as you have a, a, you know, a 50 pound pack on your back and have to dig your own hole to do your business in and cover it over again and all those things. But to sleep under that amazing starlight and 
And then I went on to tell him about another trip that I did um, in Scouts where we, we went to, we were dropped off on an island in the Florida Keys uh, with canoes and just camped out on the island and we swam with sharks and barracuda that were about the size of me and um, sleeping out on the beach, all these amazing things. And he laughed again. He said, you'll never guess what I'm doing this summer. Uh, he was going on the same trip. These unforgettable moments and experiences that we have in life. In this text this morning, we're getting an inside look at an experience that the disciples, Peter, James, and John, would never forget. It was literally for them a mountaintop experience. But the grandeur of the mountain was eclipsed by the glory of Jesus. We know that Peter, James, and John never forgot about this moment because both Peter and John wrote about this later in their life in their own writings. In 2 Peter 1, 16 and 18, speaking of the transfiguration, Peter wrote saying, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He never forgot. John, when he opened up his gospel in verse 14 of chapter 1, that famous verse where he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Don't you think that this moment probably helped the disciples on in later life when they suffered for Jesus, and they faced hardship for him? They would have remembered his glory and remembered why they're doing what they are doing. Now, we're not told what mountain that this happened on. If you take a look at verse 2, all that verse 2 says is that after six days in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus took them up to a high mountain. But most scholars believe that most likely the mountain was Mount Hermon. Here's a picture of Mount Hermon. If you see in the background the, the snow caps there, that's Mount Hermon. The reason that they believe it was probably that is this is the highest mountain in the entire region where Jesus and the disciples were, uh, uh, reaching an elevation of about 10,000 feet. Now here's a picture from the top of the mountain looking down. If you could see in the background, you are literally up with the clouds when you're on top of the mountain. And they would have been overlooking all of Israel, all of neighboring Lebanon and Syria. And there would have been a great trek with a great payoff. But the glory of the scenery here is overshadowed once again by the glory of Jesus. Because if you look at verse 2, what happened on the mountain? He was transfigured before them. Now this word transfigured in the Greek is the word metamorphumai. What does that sound like? Metamorphosis, like a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It metamorphosizes into that. Here, Jesus' divine, uh, humanity is being set aside as his sheer glory, as his divinity uh, is revealed and shining through. What this text is teaching us is Jesus is the glorious, eternal son of God. Now, we know from the fullness of the scriptures that Jesus is both God and man. He is truly God and truly man. And when people would have looked at Jesus as he walked through this world, they would have just seen what looked like an ordinary man. As Isaiah said, there was no form of majesty that we should notice him. But we know that Jesus was not always a man, but he was always 
God the Son. He, pre- ex- he existed in pre-eternity in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit in holy glory and purity. And here his divine essence is being displayed for the disciples to see. And what did it look like? I'll take a look at verse 3. In verse 3, his glory is so dazzling that Mark says in verse 3, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Depending on the time of year at Mount Hermon, the peaks of it would be snow-laden, just like we saw in the pictures. It's hard for us to imagine anything being whiter than snow, and yet Mark says here, that this whiteness that was shining out from Jesus was so brilliant we could not comprehend the intensity of it. It was unlike anything we could ever bleach to be white. And of course, it represented his purity, his holiness, his glory. Incidentally, in John's writing, when he writes the last book of the Bible in Revelation, whiteness is a theme that comes up again And again, as he describes things that have the majesty and purity of the heavens. For instance, in Revelation 5, when John sees the throne of God, how does he describe it? As a great white throne. When he sees the saints who are in heaven and what they're wearing, he says that they are wearing white robes. Revelation 19, when Jesus will come to to execute final justice and we come flying in behind him as as his army, what will we be riding on? White horses. What Mark is saying here is the glory of heavenly things is breaking through onto earth in this moment in the person of Jesus. It's amazing. Now, Luke's gospel tells us that the disciples at this time were actually sleeping, and they woke up to this scene. You can imagine if you climb up a mountain that big, you might be a little tuckered out, and you might need to take a nap. But you can imagine what it probably would have been like for them to wake up and see this dazzling glory. I'm wondering if they rubbed their eyes a few times to figure out, am I dreaming? Is it the elevation? What is going on here? No, this is real. Jesus really is amazingly uh, showing his glory here. And I wonder in that moment as they looked at Jesus, did a certain Old Testament character come to their minds? What Old Testament character do we know about who his face shone white and his clothes shone white? Moses. Remember in Exodus when he would meet with God in the tent of meeting and the presence of the Lord and the presence of God was so magnificent that when Moses left it, his very face shined so that he had to wear a veil. Well, Jesus here is shining, not because he's in the presence of God, but because He is the presence of God. Hebrews tells us, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If we could have seen this moment, any doubts that we have about the divinity of Jesus would be wiped away forever. We would be convinced This is God. Now, speaking of Moses, who shows up on the mountain with Jesus? Take a look at verse 4. 
And verse 4, if the scene could get any more amazing and glorious, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. These two Old Testament saints are brought down out of the realm of heaven to be brought back into the realm of earth to speak to Jesus here in this moment. We may ask, well, why these two uh, saints in particular? Why not Abraham and Daniel or Jeremiah and Isaiah? Or the list could go on and on and on. Well, if you think about the life experiences of Moses and Elijah, both of them, we know, had mountaintop experiences with God where God manifested his glory to them on the top of the mountain. But more fundamental here, Moses and Elijah represent something in this moment. Moses was the writer of the law of God, the first five books of the Bible. And Elijah, we know, was a prophet. Here we have, standing before Jesus, the law and the prophets, the representation of the Old Testament scriptures, which exist to, to uh, point us forward to the coming of the Savior, the coming of Jesus. And now here they stand as the great representatives of the Old Testament in the presence of the fulfillment of all that they represent. And what are they doing? Verse 4 tells us, again, that they were talking with Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what they were talking about, but Luke's gospel does. In Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31, he tells us that uh, they appeared in glory and they spoke of his departure, literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Here they are, reminding Jesus, encouraging Jesus because Jesus knows at this point he is soon to face the suffering and agony of the cross. And they have come to encourage him of the coming glory that he is going to enjoy once again as he leaves this earth and goes back to be in the fellowship of his father in absolute glory. What, what a joy for Moses and Elijah. All their lives long, they had the privilege of encouraging the people of God with the hope of the coming glory of God despite their suffering. But they never saw the fulfillment of that promise in their day. And now here they've been brought back to stare in the eyes of the fulfillment of all they lived for and ministered for. And they have the privilege now of encouraging the Son of God himself with the hope of his coming glory despite the trials that he has to face. What better honor could you have in life than to become the cheerleader for Jesus? It's an amazing scene. So how do the mere mortals respond to all of this? How do Peter, James, and John respond? If you take a look at verse 6, verse 6, it says they were terrified. Uh, can you imagine? Can you imagine waking up to this scene? You've got the glory of God shining in your face. You have Moses and Elijah. You would have been totally disoriented. You would have been speechless. Or you should be speechless. But which disciple decides to open his mouth? Uh, of course, big mouth Peter is going to open his mouth. And at, at verse 5, Peter says, Rabbi! Uh, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
Uh, I think it's funny. A lot of scholars actually think that Mark wrote his gospel by getting material directly from Peter, that they, they sat down and interviewed him. And I just wonder how this section was like as they're maybe sitting across the coffee table from one another. And uh, Peter is talking about the transfiguration. And Mark says, so what would you do? I just wonder if Peter kind of, oh, I opened my big mouth. I said something weird like, well, this is cool. And uh, tense, tense. Let's build some tents. Now, why does he say this? In verse 6, of course, he did not know what to say. It was so glorious. But he's Peter, so he has to say something. But I think in here, despite the, the, the fact that Peter kind of ruins the moment, there is a, a great truth that pops through what he says here. Because in the face of beholding the sheer glory of Christ, in his disorientation, the first thing that he can think to say, the first thing that his heart leads him to say is, it is good that we are here. It is our good to behold Christ's glory. What is the best thing in life? What is the good life? The good life is to behold the glory of Jesus. J.C. Ryle in his commentary has this great passage where he says, let us see in Peter's fervent cry, it is good that we are here. What comfort and consolation the sight of glory can give to a true believer. Let us look forward and try to form some idea of the pleasure which saints shall experience when they shall at last meet the Lord Jesus and meet to part no more. We shall all say with one heart and one voice when we see Christ and all his saints, it is good that we are here. Many of you know that my hero's name is John Owen. Uh, he was a theologian and pastor way back in the 1600s. John Owen lived a very hard life. He had 10 children and he buried every single one of them in his lifetime. He had two wives that also predeceased him. And he was constantly uh, navigating and running away from the law because he was living in a time in England where pastors who preached the true gospel were thrown in jail or even killed. And at the end of his life, to add on to all that other suffering, he suffered with great illness. Uh, many think it was kidney stones, which was something that you couldn't do anything back before the days of modern medicine. And in the last days of his life, as he was struggling terribly physically, uh, knowing that his time to go to glory was soon, he said that he wanted to spend his last days on this earth just contemplating and beholding the glory of Christ until he met him in eternity. And as he had these contemplations at the end of his life, he wrote a book, the last book he ever wrote, named The Glory of Christ. You can still read it today. And as he writes in his pain and his agony, this is one of the things that he writes in his book. He says, one view of the glory of Christ will give us full relief. For what are the things of this life? What is the good and evil of this life in comparison with an interest in Christ's transcendent glory? 
When we have apprehensions of Christ's glory, our, our minds contemplating it, our hearts grasping the joys of it, let pain and sickness and sorrows and fear and dangers and death say what they will. With the glory of Christ in view, we shall be ready to face and overcome all things. What is the good life? The good life is to behold Jesus in all his glory, to have seen all the glory and beauty of this world and yet to miss out on the glory of Jesus is to miss out on the whole point of life. We were created to stare and be amazed at the glory of the Savior. As St. Augustine said, our hearts will remain restless until they rest in him. You say, well, I'm tracking with you, Adam, but I have a question. How? How do I behold the glory of Christ? Because uh, disciples, they had Jesus right before them. He could reveal his glory to them right there. We don't have his presence here physically among us. How can I behold the glory of Christ? Good question. Take a look at verse 7. In verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them. This is the, the great Shekinah glory, God's glory manifested uh, among them. This is the, the cloud that was the pillar that led them through the wilderness, the cloud that would descend on the tent of meeting, the cloud that filled the temple at its dedication, the cloud that will uh, be with Jesus when he comes again and we meet him in the air. And out of the cloud, God speaks. And what does he say in verse 7? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. How do we behold the glory of Christ? We behold Christ's glory through his word, through his word. Here in the presence of Moses and Elijah, the great representatives of the Old Testament scripture, God declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that they represented. And he declares that Jesus is now the final revelation the final word to mankind. This, he says, is the one to whom you should look. This is my son. Listen to him. And to make his point, in verse 8, it says, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. The cloud dissipates. Elijah and Moses are taken back, and up, back up to heaven. The glory of Jesus is veiled over again with flesh, and Jesus is left center stage. The point being, listen to him. Focus now on him. He is everything. R.C. Sproul, when he preached on this text, he, he said a lot of people wonder if God would speak audibly to the world today. If he'd boom his voice out to the entire globe and say something, what would he say? And R.C. Sproul said, I have no doubt what he would say. I think he would say what he said here. He would tell the world, Jesus is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's what the writer of Hebrews told us in Hebrews 1. When he said long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
And then he goes on to say, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, the gospel, the revelation of Jesus in the New Testament, lest we drift away from it. We behold the glory of Jesus through the written word. And Isaac Watts wrote in his hymn so long ago, the Bible is the volumes of the Father's grace wherein we behold the Savior's face. We see his glory by faith in the scripture until we will behold it by faith or by sight uh, in eternity. Well, unfortunately, every mountaintop experience has to come to an end. And the disciples' mountaintop experience ends, and in verse 9, they're heading back down the mountain. And as they go, <coughs> Jesus <coughs> warns them to tell, not say anything until he has risen from the dead. God just finished up saying, this is, this is my son, listen to him. But the thing is, Jesus has been saying some hard things recently in this gospel. He just finished telling them about his suffering and his death and his rejection to come. And that they must take up their cross and follow him. And now here he is again talking about resurrection from the dead. The fact that he's going to die and rise again. And in verse 10, it says they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They still don't quite understand. But Jesus keeps pointing them to the fact that he is going to the cross. And in verse 11, they ask him a theological question. Now, I'm not really sure... I, I wonder if they asked this question mainly just because they just saw Elijah in person. And in verse 11, they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? In verse 12, Jesus confirms that the scribes are right. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. What in the world are they talking about? If you would turn to the last page of your Old Testament... And the very last paragraph of the Old Testament, you would find this verse, this last promise that God made to his people, Malachi 4, 5. And his last promise in the Old Testament scriptures was, behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, says that this prophecy was fulfilled in John the Baptist, he says, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he says, he is Elijah who is to come. But Jesus is making a crucial point here with the disciples because he says, how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I tell you, Elijah has come, John the Baptist. And what did they do to John the Baptist? They cut his head off. And now he says, just as they treated John the Baptist, so I, as the Son of Man, must endure suffering as well. You see this great picture? This mystery of who Jesus is. He is the great, glorious Lord who shines in splendor and, and, and majesty. But he's also the one who came down to be the suffering servant, to bleed and die. He came down, he left his throne to come down and take on your sin, taking on human flesh. Just like John in Revelation 5, the angels tell him, behold, the lion of Judah. And he turns around to look at the lion and what does he see? A lamb standing as though it had been slaughtered. 
Jesus is the lion, but he's also the lamb. Why does this matter? What do we do with the transfiguration? Uh, what does it make, uh, what practical difference does it make on our lives? The transfiguration points us forward, points us forward to the coming of Jesus when his glory will be revealed to all the world as he truly is the son of God. And we have the hope of being transfigured ourselves at Christ's second coming. When his glory is revealed, the New Testament writers always connect his coming glory to our coming glory. That famous funeral verse that you've heard many times at the funerals of your friends and loved ones. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, transfigured in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. The apostle uh, John in 1 John 3, 2 said, beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. What a day that will be. In heaven, there's no street lights. There's no sun because the glory of Christ is so dazzling and majestic, it will light up everything. And in that moment, we will be changed out of this frail form, this suffering that we endure. We'll be given a whole new body. We will be amazed at what we look like. I'll be amazed at what you look like. I'll have hair. <laughs> and we'll finally be free. We'll have the capacity to look full at the glory of God and survive. Our hearts will finally be enabled and, and unfettered to love God as we should. Our minds will finally be able to plumb the unsearchable riches of Christ and for all eternity just enjoy the glories that we find there. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll know less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Don't miss out on this glory. Jesus came as the glorious son and he missed out on his glory for a time so that you might not miss out on his glory for eternity. Trust Christ. Submit to him. You were created to behold the beauty of Jesus. Well, I'll close this way. We spoke about John Owen. On John Owen's deathbed, moments before he died, the publisher came to his side. The one who was going to publish this last book that he wrote, The Glory of Christ. And he came to John Owen with one last little gift and he said, it's off. It's being printed right now as you sit here on your bed, John. And John Owen replied, through his pain, through his agony, this is what he said. I'm so glad to hear it. 
But oh, my dear brother, the long wished for day is come at last in which I shall see the glory of Christ in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world. Christian, take heart. We look at the glory of Jesus and behold the glory of Jesus by faith now. But the long-waited-for day is coming when we shall see his glory in another manner than we ever could in this lifetime. You will, for all eternity, enjoy the glory of Christ more dazzling and more clear than even Peter, James, and John saw it on top of the mountain. Father, thank you that you gave us the scripture so that we might behold the glory of Jesus by faith. We're so thankful that he, the eternal son, who enjoyed full majesty, full glory, was willing to leave it for a time, to take on frail human form, and to enter into a, a broken world, a rebellious world, to bear the wrath for sin. He didn't have to do it. But by your grace and your mercy, you saved us. Father, help us to live for the glory of Jesus. Not to be distracted by lesser things in our lives, but to just stare and stare and stare at Jesus until we stare at him in person. Lord, we look forward to that day where all the wrongs will be righted and his glory as he truly is will be revealed to this world and we'll come in riding behind him on that majestic cloud. Father, help us to long for that day and live in light of that day when there will be no need for street lamps, no need for the sun because Jesus will shine glorious for all eternity. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.